disembodied voices. I know. Phantoms I, plaguing you. I know. Yeah. Losing your tools. Gosh, no wonder they couldn't keep the workers. Whales of previous miners. And you thought it was just the road itself that was scary. I, well, yeah. I, I heard whales coming from the passenger seat as we were <laughs> driving the road. <laughs> Especially when we went over that big bridge with a huge drop-off. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that wailing was from me. (laughs) This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, where we share stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books, Today, we're taking you to some ghost towns in and around the national parks, from West Virginia all the way to the interior of Alaska. These are towns that were abruptly abandoned by their residents, but have they been completely abandoned? Or are there still some spirits hanging around, haunting their former homes? In addition to the fright factor, ghost towns are an extraordinary relic from America's past. The remaining structures and artifacts tell stories about the lives of the men, women, and children who once lived there. We'll talk about what caused the boom and bust of these ghost towns and why you'll want to check them out the next time you visit these national parks. But first, we celebrate Bat Week. Matt, we have so much to talk about. There's so much going on this week. This might be the best week of my life. <laughs> the bar must be pretty low. <laughs> what What's so exciting that's going on this week, Karen, that, that it's most exciting week of your life? Well, two things. Okay, before we get into the ghost town section of this episode, I have to mention two big things that are happening this week. It's Bat Week in the national parks and actually all over the country, Bat Week. Also, Matt, this week, October 2023, is the centennial of Carlsbad Caverns on October 25th. Why didn't we know about this earlier? I know. I feel like since it's one of my absolute favorite parks, we should be there right now celebrating with them. All right. Well, let me know how that goes. Uh, Send me a postcard from Carlsbad Caverns. Well, I'd have to get on an airplane today, which probably isn't going to happen. Okay. So let's just mention the centennial briefly. I'll just do a really short park history because I know everyone wants to know about this. In 1898... 16-year-old Texas cowhand Jim White probably entered Carlsbad Caverns for the very first time. Now, the first person to find the entrance to the cavern, that remains disputed. And of course, you know, that could have gone back hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. Thousands of years. Right, right. Yeah. There's probably a lot of indigenous people who knew about it. Absolutely. Now, from 1915 to 1918, the first photographs of Carlsbad Caverns were released to the public. These were pictures taken in the cavern's scenic rooms and big room. They were taken by Ray Davis and published. And all of a sudden, interest in the cavern was stimulated. 
That's I can imagine <laughs> with the first photographs of the big room. Yes, yes. Wow. You know how incredible that is. So word of the cave spread and it finally reached Washington, D.C. In 1923, the U.S. Department of the Interior sent Inspector Robert Hawley to see whether Carlsbad Cavern was truly an outstanding natural scenic wonder. Now, he was originally a skeptic, but he wrote in his final report, quote, I am wholly conscious of the feebleness of my efforts to convey in words the deep conflicting emotions, the feeling of fear and awe, and the desire for an inspired understanding of the divine creator's work, which presents to the human eye such a complex aggregate of natural wonders, end quote. <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot of words there. <laughs> I know, but what I love about that quote is he said, his efforts to describe the cave were feeble. That's how I feel about my efforts. <laughs> Feebleness. <laughs> I feel feeble right now because I can't quite convey how incredible this park is. All right. So later that year, on October 25th, 1923, President Calvin Coolidge designated a limestone cavern known as the Carlsbad Cave of extraordinary proportions and of unusual beauty and variety of natural decoration as the National Park Service's newest national monument. Okay, so we have now successfully made every episode of the Dear Bob and Sue podcast a little bit about Carlsbad Caverns. <laughs> You know, I've tried. I've tried my best. <laughs> and then, of course, in 1930, Congress created Carlsbad Caverns National Park. And because of illustrated articles in magazines like National Geographic and, of course, word of mouth, Carlsbad Caverns became one of the world's most celebrated cave systems and was designated a World Heritage Site in 1995. If they only had bison. Then there would be something for everyone in the family. Right. You know, there's a chance because more and more bison are coming to the National Park. So maybe someday they will. But anyway, happy centennial anniversary, 100 years to Carlsbad Caverns National Park in New Mexico. Okay, but I'm sure we're, we have other things to talk about. Well, we do. Something that's a little nearer and dearer to your heart would be Bat Week. <laughs> Bat Week. <laughs> That's sweetening the pot. This is Bat Week because it's the week of Halloween. That's that's how they time it. It's very clever. That's right. And bats are very closely associated with Halloween because a lot of people think they're scary. Yeah. And are you going to add to the popular narrative that there's something to be afraid of? Well, no. You know, I used to be a little bit creeped out by bats, I have to say, until I think it was the time we went to Lake Powell at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and we slept on the top deck of a houseboat every night. And the bats would come out, and they would fly literally right above our faces. They would buzz us. And I wasn't creeped out at all. I was, I was surprised that you weren't creeped out. You know, it was so amazing because, of course, you're looking up at this also incredible dark sky and you've got the you've got the ring of the rocks around Lake Powell, the stars, and then these bats flitting around. It was actually kind of magical, I have to say. It was magical. Yes, it was. <laughs> 
Magical. <laughs> the bats weren't magical. The moment was magic. The, the bats do not was... use magic, just to be clear to everyone. No. Now, the National Park Service celebrates Bat Week because bats live in nearly every national park, from the Alaskan interior to the tropical forests of American Samoa, all the way over to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. But because they shelter in secluded places and are mostly active at night, a lot of visitors rarely see them. They're everywhere. Matter of fact, a few weeks ago when we were in Yellowstone, remember at dusk, we were walking along the boardwalk right there by Old Faithful Inn and one just flitted around us and we tried to get a video. I think we did get a video of yeah, it. Yeah, he's in the video. We were standing on a bridge over the Firehole River just admiring the view and there was a bat right in front of us just doing his thing, catching his dinner. Yep. <laughs> but let's talk about that for a minute, Matt. Okay. So more than 45 unique species of bats live in the national parks, and they provide a lot of different benefits. They can serve as prey to other animals. They pollinate plants. But most importantly, they eat bugs. Yeah, they're, they're great at controlling insects, Karen. I like this fun fact that, that you found for us. They eat so many bugs every night that they've estimated that bats contribute $3.7 billion worth of pest control each year to the U.S. So we, we owe the bats. We do owe the bats $3.7 billion, apparently. A year. A, a, year, a year. Right. So when they're around to eat the bugs, there are fewer insects causing damage to crops, and farmers don't have to invest in as many pesticides. So eating insects is one of their greatest contributions. But there's something very scary that's happening to the bats. There is. There is a threat to bats called white-nose syndrome. It is a fatal disease caused by a fungus, and I cannot pronounce the Latin name of the fungus, but like, we're going to call it white-nose syndrome. It's like 12 syllables yeah, long. Yeah, but, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to even try that. But yeah, this disease affects cave-dwelling bats, and they found this disease for the first time in New York State in the winter of 2006. And since then, it's spread to more than half of the United States. And when it gets into these colonies of bats, it kills nearly 99% of them. So the way this works is it's, it's a fungus that doesn't hurt humans, but it wakes bats up from their hibernation. And so what happens is then they burn more energy when they're supposed to be hibernating and conserving energy. So it threatens their survival, makes them weak, disoriented, and they essentially they starve to death searching for food in the winter months when normally they don't search for food in the winter months. So that's what's happening uh, with the white nose syndrome. The park service and really the public lands all over are doing a lot to prevent the spread of this. For instance, we went to three different lava tubes this summer. Much and, to your delight. Yeah. More caves. Three is probably uh, <laughs> two more than, than you really need to, t to go to to uh, experience a lava cave. Anyway, uh, the rangers at, at all these places, they're, they're very concerned about the spread of white-nose syndrome. Most of these caves, what they have you do is walk across a disinfectant pad before you go into the cave and when you come out of it. And the reason for this is the fungus can live on shoes, it can live in fabric for years, and even if you wash the clothes that you had on when white-nose fungus gets on it, 
it doesn't kill the fungus. So they're very careful with visitors, especially visitors who've been in other caves in the last few years to make sure that this doesn't spread to their particular cave. Yes, it's very serious. The National Park Service is taking it very seriously, as they should. Yeah. Okay, so that is something that's threatening bats, and it's not a joke. It's no, it's, a, it's no. a serious thing. That's right. But Matt, in honor of Bat Week, I have a very short pop quiz for you. I thought that would be fun. We haven't done one in a while. Okay. Now, you have a 50% chance of getting each one right, so that's pretty good, right? So this is called Myth or Fact. All right, first one. Bats are just mice with wings. Myth or fact? Myth. That's correct. They're not mice with wings. (laughs) Okay, that was an easy one. Actually, they're more closely related to primates and humans than they are to mice and rats. Bats are extremely long-lived for their size. Some can live up to 35 years compared to rats that live one to two years. So don't compare so them not to rats. a rat or a mouse. Yeah, yeah. and it's not, it's not rat week. We'll talk about rats during rat week. Right, right. Okay, number two. Myth or fact, bats drink blood. They, they can. Myth or fact, state your answer. <laughs> fact. Very good. There is actually a species of bats called vampire bats that rely on the blood of animals to live. Vampire bats live in Latin America, and they primarily feed on cattle or other large animals, which often don't even notice that the bats have come for dinner. Oh, I think I would notice. (laughs) Well, are you cattle or another large animal? (laughs) I am a large animal, yes. (laughs) Okay, number three. All bats are rabid. No, fa- that's a myth. That, they're not, they're not rabid. Well, well, some are. Yeah. I mean, but okay. not not many. No, less than one percent of bats have rabies. But if humans have any contact with bat saliva, such as a bite or a scratch, that should be reported to a doctor immediately. Bat saliva, right? Bat saliva. Well, if you're just even. holding one and yeah. petting it, and you don't get any saliva on you, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other thing about you're not supposed to touch bats. Okay. Or, yeah, All or right. pet them. Or All right. <laughs> okay. And the last one: bats are blind. Myth or fact? Myth. They can see. Yes, they, they can. might. They might not see very well sometimes, but yeah, they can see. Actually, it says bats can see just fine and have pretty good eyesight. Some bats, of course, also use echolocation as a way to see obstacles and catch prey in low light conditions. All right, Matt, you got a hundred percent, and I have some extra credit for you. Okay, great. Okay, here you go. What is a baby bat called? A baby bat would be called a kit. Nope. You want it one baby more? bat? <laughs> <laughs> a baby bat is called a pup. A pup. A pup. Yeah, that was close. Do I get partial credit? <laughs> do you do you want to try one? I have one last thing you <laughs> do could Do I have a choice? <laughs> How many pups do female bats usually give birth to each year? One. <gasps> Very good, Matt. You yeah. finished strong. You finished strong. All right. All right, that's it for our episode today. Uh, <laughs> all bats, all the time. This um, isn't even the topic of our I know, episode. Karen. I know, but I could not Look, resist. This is a uh-huh. short attention span <laughs> podcast here. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm not quite ready for that. <laughs> right. I have one more thing to say here about we go. bats. Yeah. If you would like to help bats in the national parks, 
consider adopting one from one of the national park programs. <laughs> and no, you don't actually get to take the bat home with you. Yeah, it costs $3.7 billion <laughs> to adopt the bats. No, it doesn't. You tried to adopt a bat once and they turned you well, away. <laughs> I, I know. Didn't know there was an interview. <laughs> You weren't fit to parent a bat, no, apparently. They, they called for the next person in line. All right. Well, that's great, Karen. Thank you for all the bat information. You're welcome. All right. Should we talk about some ghost towns in the national parks? Okay, let's do it. Now, there are a lot of ghost towns scattered throughout our national parks, but we're going to focus today on three of them. And we'll start in Death Valley National Park in California. Death Valley actually has the most ghost towns of any national park. You got Ballarat, you got Chloride City, Greenwater, Harrisburg, Panamint City, Skidoo, and Leadfield. And just a, a note for people who are visiting the park, many of the roads in Death Valley are currently closed because of recent flooding in 2023. So, so definitely check the park website before planning a trip to that park. Right, especially if you want to check out some of these more remote ghost towns because they are located on dirt roads that are currently inaccessible. However, we are going to talk about the ghost town of Rhyolite, which is the largest and most accessible ghost town. We visited that last April. We did, and it's easy to get to because the, the road there is in good shape. There are quite a few buildings in Rhyolite. I mean, there's there's a lot to see. Yes, and it's also fairly popular. It received over 1.7 million visitors since 2022. So that's kind of a lot. There was no one there when we were there. That surprises me. Yeah, surprises yeah. me too. Yeah, this particular ghost town, it's on BLM land, so it's not in the park. It's very close to the park. It's about four miles west of the town of Beatty, Nevada. And it is 35 miles from the Furnace Creek Visitor Center in Death Valley National Park. And by the way, if you are wanting to stay in the area and you can't get reservations for anywhere to stay inside the park, Beatty is a great place to stay. It's just right outside the park. It is. The location is actually really good. We stayed there for the first time in April and um, just zoomed back and forth in and out of the park. The town of Rhyolite used to be known as the Queen City, the largest town in the Death Valley area. During its heyday, when they were making hay, they had five to 10,000 people living there. That's back in 1905 to 1911. Yeah, and you would be surprised, Matt. I saw a photo of the town during this heyday period. It was huge. Well, as you can imagine, 10,000 people. I mean, it was it was like a small city, which isn't what you're going to see now. But let me tell you just a really quick history about Rhyolite, I if I might. I cannot wait. <laughs> okay. So this ghost town's origins were brought about by two men, Shorty Harris and Ernest Cross, who were prospecting in the area in 1904. They found quartz all over a hill, and as Shorty described it, the quartz was just full of free gold. This banner is a crackerjack. Don't know what that means. I don't know what Banner or Cracker Jack really means there. Anyway, soon the rush was on and several camps were set up. A town site was laid out nearby and given the name Rhyolite from what, Matt? You know this. <laughs> Silica-rich volcanic rock. That's right, <laughs> that most of the gold was found in. That's, I believe we've talked about Rhyolite in the... Um, 
Chiricahua uh, National Monument there episode, you go. Karen. That's we, right. We rocked the rhyolite by <laughs> by hiking through the park. <laughs> but we didn't find any gold, unfortunately. No, we, no, we didn't. <laughs> so there were over 2,000 claims covering everything in a 30-mile area. The most promising was the Montgomery Shoshone Mine, which prompted everyone to move to the rhyolite town site. The town immediately boomed with buildings springing up everywhere. One building was three stories tall and cost $90,000 to build. Get this, a stock exchange and board of trade were formed. The red light district drew women from as far away as San Francisco. There were hotels, stores, a school for 250 children, an ice plant, two electric plants, foundries, machine shops, and even a miners' union hospital. It contained two churches, 50 saloons. There you go, Matt, 50. 18 stores, two undertakers, 19 lodging houses, three public swimming pools, eight doctors, and two dentists. And by January 1907, a network of 400 electric streetlight poles were installed in Rhyolite, and the town boasted water, plumbing, and telephone service. I wonder how much a dentist charged to pull a tooth back then. <laughs> That's pretty much well, all Dennis did back then. Right, and they there was no Novocaine, so yes, it yeah. was probably pretty yeah, cheap. Yeah, usually wait till the pain is so great that you'd rather have somebody pull it out with pliers than continue on. So right. anyway, I digress. You do. So the town citizens had a very active social life, including baseball games, dances, whist parties, tennis, a symphony, Sunday school picnics, basketball games, Saturday night variety shows at the Opera House and pool tournaments. And an enterprising miner, Tom Kelly, built a bottle house out of 50,000 beer and liquor bottles. And by the way, you can go and see that bottle house. It's still standing. We saw it. We didn't go inside it. We looked around the outside. Yeah, the, the door was locked. We couldn't go in. However, it's very cool to see the bottles. I mean, the walls are made out of bottles. It's a peculiarity. Definitely. Now, unfortunately, the financial panic of 1907 took its toll on Rhyolite and was seen as the beginning of the end for the town. In the next few years, mines started closing and banks failed. Newspapers went out of business, and by 1910, the production at the mill had slowed, and there were only 611 residents left in the town. By 1915, the town only had 20 people, and the next year, the power and lights were turned off. By 1920, Rhyolite's population was just 14 people, and its last resident died in 1924. Yeah, because they tripped and fell in the dark because lights had been turned out four years earlier. <laughs> Is that what happened? You forgot to put that on your little history channel. Yeah, I, I didn't get that piece, but you must have done extensive research on that. Yeah, yeah I do back backup <laughs> research just, just in case you miss something. Well, today, when you go, there's several ruins that are interesting. You have the Tom Kelly Bottle House. You also have a train depot. The train depot was pretty cool. Yes, and that's what I want to talk about in a second. Okay, yeah. and the remains of the three-story bank building and the jail. The jail's still standing. Well, yeah. part of the jail's well, still standing. And, and the bank failed, but the building's still there. Right, yeah. right. Okay, so the train depot is the most impressive and well-preserved building in the ghost town. It has aged well. It looks like the train's just going to pull in just any moment. Well, that's a good segue, Matt, because in 1906, the first train from the Las Vegas and Tonopah Railroad entered Rhyolite on December 14th with about 100 passengers. 
And in 1907, they began building this train depot. It's constructed of concrete block with a solid concrete foundation in a mission revival style. There was a gentleman's waiting area on the east and a ladies waiting room on the west. The ticket office was in the center of the building and the ticket agents quarters were upstairs. So this took up an entire city block on Golden Street and cost approximately $130,000 to build the equivalent of about $4 million today. Why did they have to separate the men and the women? Why do you think that is? Uh, well, maybe when I continue the story, you'll have a clue. <laughs> All right. So this railroad depot was completed in June of 1908. But sadly, this is around the same time that Rhyolite began its slow decline. And within months of its completion, more people were leaving Rhyolite through the depot than were arriving. So the railroad turned a small profit in 1908, but lost money every following year until it was finally dismantled in 1919. The tracks were salvaged, but the depot was left to stand as one of the few remaining buildings from the Rhyolite light boom, primarily because they couldn't move it anyplace else. But in the 1920s, Rhyolite enjoyed a small revival through tourism. A man named Wes Moreland bought the depot in 1935. And beginning in 1937, he operated it as the Rhyolite Ghost Casino. The drinking and gaming were conducted downstairs, while a different type of hospitality, reportedly staffed by working women, was conducted upstairs in the old ticket agent's quarters. Yeah, in train lingo, I think that's what they call getting your ticket punched. <laughs> I don't think you could say that on the Dear Bob and Sue podcast. It's train, it's train lingo. All the train enthusiasts out there will know what I'm talking about. So that's why they had to separate the men and the women. I believe so. Yeah. And then after that, since the 1930s, the depot has passed from person to person. And in October 2000, the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, acquired the depot along with most of the Rhyolite town site. The BLM's Tonopah Field Office wants to restore the historic building to use as a visitor center. And, you know, they don't have enough money, unfortunately. They are accepting donations, however. Well, that would be cool to see what they're able to do with that town. I know. Wouldn't that be cool to have that train depot restored as a visitor center? It would be great if they could do something with that building. Yes. And one more note, if you go to visit, what's kind of unique at the edge of Rhyolite is the Goldwell Open Air Museum. And there is this sculpture, major sculpture there by a Belgian artist, and it's titled The Last Supper. But this is a ghostly interpretation. And Christ and his disciples are, well, basically they're ghosts. Yeah, it was a little weird, but it's appropriate for our episode about ghost towns. Death Valley has a very stark, forbidding landscape, and at night it does feel like it could be haunted, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, are you going to tell us about any? Well, ghosts I'm, I'm in just going to say that some people have claimed to see an old man leading a mule loaded down with gold mining equipment. He just appears out of nowhere, walking down the street, and then he vanishes as quickly as he appeared. Did you see any ghosts when we were there? No. Well, those weird sculptures. Um, <laughs> but no, I didn't see any old men leading mules down the road or anything like that. I think you have to be open to it. <laughs> you definitely have to be open to, to it. Yeah. All right. Just one more note. There is another 
ghost town. Well, there are a lot of them, as we mentioned, but there's one called Leadfield that we visited on one of our trips. It was the time we rented a Jeep and drove the Titus Canyon Road. And this uh, little ghost town has some mines, some tunnels, there are some remains of some buildings, a dugout and some foundations. But this ghost town only boomed for less than a year, 1926 to 27, because the lead deposits bottomed out quickly. But one of the lasting legacies of this ghost town was the building of the beautiful Titus Canyon Road. Yeah, that's a fun road to go on. They built this road. It cost $60,000 in 1926, and it winds through the mountain passes for over 15 miles from Leadfield to the Beatty Highway, and it climbs from an elevation of about 3,400 feet at the highway to 5,200 feet through the passes and then back down to 4,000 feet at Leadfield. Uh, we drove that. It's it's a little bit sketchy, but when it's not wet and the road hasn't been damaged, probably could get there in just any kind of rental car. Although, you need to be careful with the rental cars in Death Valley because if you get stuck out there, it can be really expensive to get towed. But if you have a trusted vehicle, probably a uh, four-wheel drive high clearance vehicle, definitely drive this road, this Titus Canyon Road. It was considered an engineering marvel at the time. And really, I think it's one of the most spectacular roads in Death Valley National Park. Yeah, a beautiful drive and the remains of a ghost town. All right, that's it for our Ghost Town episode. <laughs> not so fast, not so fast, Matt. We're just getting warmed up. Okay. Um, okay, let's move to Alaska, Wrangell St. Elias National Park, and the mining town of Kennecott. Yeah, and you know we talked about Kennecott and this park in episode 134, so if you want to check out more. But uh, yeah, Kennecott is a town in the heart of Wrangell St. Elias National Park. And you'll find that the remnants of this historic mining town, it was active from 1911 to 1938, and nearly $200 million worth of copper was pulled out of that mining site. At its peak, there was about 300 people who worked in the mill town, another two to 300 people working in the mines. And because of its remoteness, that town of Kennecott, it had to be a self-contained town. It was a company town. It included a hospital, general store, school, skating rink, tennis court, recreation hall. It even had a dairy. I know. So they must have had cows. How they got cows out to that remote location, I will never know. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if the grizzly bears messed with the cows. <laughs> I don't know. So in June of 1998, the National Park Service acquired many of the significant buildings it's currently listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and Kennecott is considered the best remaining example of early 20th century copper mining. So this is a cool ghost town, if you will, to visit. You know, the park has a visitor center there. You can wander around this town, see a lot of the buildings. So that in itself is cool. But you have to get there. <laughs> right, right. And they do have a little tiny airport there. So if you can take a small plane, and, but I think a lot of people get there by driving. And so we did this when we visited the park. We drove the McCarthy Road, and it's a 60-mile gravel road. And that road originated in 1909 as a railway. They had to construct a railway to get to the Kennecott Copper Mines. 
when large-scale mining ended at the mine in 1938, most of those rails were pulled up for scrap iron. And in 1971, they had to build a new bridge over the Copper River, and the rail bed was covered with gravel, creating today's surface for the McCarthy Road. Right. So the road is what used to be the railway. And while visitors to the town of Kennecott have reported ghostly encounters, it turns out that this road might be even more haunted. Let's talk for a minute about how difficult it was for workers to build this railway. The Copper River and Northwestern Railway was built between 1907 and 1911 to carry ore from Kennecott to Cordova on Prince William Sound. The copper was hauled there and then shipped south to smelters in Tacoma, Washington. This railroad spanned a massive glacier. Apparently, the tracks had to be moved continually as the glacier shifted and settled. It bridged canyons and it clung to rock walls above the Copper River. During construction, thousands of workers were required to dig through snow and avalanche areas. Others blasted through miles and miles of rock. And sadly, many were reported to have died during construction of this Copper River Railway. Now, after Kennecott and the railway closed... The National Park Service showed up when Wrangell St. Elias became a national park and Kennecott flourished again as a tourist attraction. And visitors now drive this McCarthy Road, which, as we said, took over a section of the old railroad grade from Chitna east into the mountains. And you know what, Matt? I can't, can't even guess. This was a surprise to me. The greatest concentration of paranormal activity in Alaska has been reported near this old railway. It's said to be so haunted and so spooky that to this day, 75 years after the final load was hauled, phantoms have plagued repeated attempts by locals and even state officials to develop the area. Phantoms have plagued them? Yes, yes. So widespread and persistent stories of hauntings along the old track have been reported, especially near Chitna. Over the years, travelers on the road and visitors to present-day Kennecott have claimed they've seen tombstones just off the road. And then on their way back from Kennecott, they've reported that the grave markers are gone, vanished into thin air. We didn't see any of that. We did not we see drove. any of that. I was just look, watching the road in front of me. I know you are. I didn't. I was not <laughs> plagued by phantoms. Uh, no. Um, and here's what's really interesting. Back in the late 1990s, the state of Alaska is said to have begun developing a government housing tract out along this old rail bed. But during construction, workers so regularly encountered phantom visions and, quote, disembodied voices of both children and adults along the old copper railroad, end quote, that keeping workers became impossible. Eventually, things got even worse. Construction workers heard the wails of presumed long-dead miners and then started losing their tools right out of their tool belts and boxes. It was enough to continually frighten off workers, and the whole project is said to have been scrapped. Disembodied voices. I know. Phantoms I, plaguing you. I know. Yeah, losing your tools. Gosh, no wonder they couldn't keep the workers, whales of previous miners. And you thought it was just the road itself that was scary. I well, Yeah, I, I heard whales coming from the passenger seat <laughs> as we were driving the road. 
Especially when we went over that big bridge with a huge drop off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That whaling was from me. No, the only yeah. thing I thought was scary was the potholes and the washboarded sections of the road. I, you know, I didn't see any tombstones. No, I didn't either. But just note. If you're going to visit Kennecott in Wrangell St. Elias and you're driving the McCarthy Road, this is just one more reason why you don't want to get a flat tire while you're out on that road. No, you have to put up with the whales of long dead miners while you're changing your tire. That's right. Spooky. All right, Matt, let's move on to the last ghost town we're going to talk about. And this is in West Virginia in New River Gorge National Park, and it's called Thurmond Ghost Town. It's in the heart of New River Gorge National Park and Preserve, and it's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's about a 20-mile drive south of the New River Gorge Briggs along Thurmond Road, which is winding and narrow at times. So large vehicles over 25 feet in length and trailers are not recommended for that road. That's right. Now, the Thurman Depot, the train depot, operates as a summer National Park Visitors Center. It's open daily, Memorial Day weekend through Labor Day weekend, and it's open on weekends in September and October. And about 80% of Thurmond is owned by the National Park Service. They have some well-preserved buildings, including hotels, a bank, and the train depot, that gives visitors a sense of what happened around the turn of the century. And many believe that this abandoned town site is haunted. Yeah, there's a pattern here. Well, yes, (laughs) this is one about ghost towns. (laughs) So this historic town of Thurman was established by Captain William Thurmond in the 1880s. And this was a train town, Matt, not a mining town. Captain Thurmond's vision for this 73 acres of land Um, which bordered the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, was to serve the miners working in the area's coal mines and to become a prosperous community for the workers and their families. So this town was to serve the miners. This wasn't necessarily a mining town. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for for that explanation. You're welcome. So during the first two decades of the 1900s, Thurman was a classic boom town. Huge amounts of coal flowed into Thurman from the mine areas. This made Thurman the largest revenue generator on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. Fifteen passenger trains a day came through town, and the depot served as many as 75,000 passengers a year. With so many visitors, the hotels and boarding houses were always overflowing, and at its peak, Thurmond had two hotels and two banks. The downtown area had restaurants, clothing stores, a jewelry store, and dry goods stores. The town even had a movie theater. Captain Thurman originally banned alcohol within the borders of Thurmond, but just outside of the incorporated portion of the town, the Dunn Glen Hotel was erected across the New River, and it was a place that became notorious for its free-flowing booze, mischief, and gambling. This upscale getaway for the wealthy became a famous resort and has been the subject of many stories over the decades. Yeah, that's what happens when you have free-flowing booze. <laughs> Lots of and good stories. So the Dunklin Hotel was one of the two hotels located near Thurmond. And it got its start when a man named Thomas McKell married Miss Jean Dunn of Chillicothe, Ohio. He was given 12,500 acres in Fayette County by her father as a wedding present. Well, wait a second. He, he got, he got 12,500 acres. 
as a wedding present from the dad. From his father-in-law, yeah. right, I, right. I don't remember getting any 12,500 acres when we got married. <laughs> you got a handshake and a thank you for taking yeah. my daughter yeah. off my hands from my dad. I'd like the 12,500 acres now. <laughs> I'll take it in any county. Why don't they do that anymore? Isn't that well? That's like a dowry, right? Why didn't they do that like fifty years ago when we got married? <laughs> we we got married in nineteen oh one, didn't we? Oh, poor Matt! All you got was me. <laughs> <laughs> that is the saddest story of that's all these so, stories. It's scary. It's, it's it's appropriate for Halloween week. Right, right. I got nothing. No. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's so sweet. Anyway, I will continue. So here, Thomas built the Dunglen Hotel in 1901. It was a three-story, 100-room wooden structure with a wraparound deck. And I have seen some photos of this hotel. It looks so much like a haunted hotel. Well, sure. If your father-in-law hands you 12,500 acres, you can build any kind of hotel you want. <laughs> Are you still fixated on that? <laughs> it's 12,500 acres. I think it's time to move on. And with the hotel's reputation for good times, visitors called this place Dodge City of the East. Because of its spacious lobby, dining, and ballroom areas, the Dunglen was known for its parties. They had huge dances in the ballroom. Symphonies would ride the train in to perform and played well into the night, sometimes all night, so the legends say. And even though alcohol was banned in the town of Thurman, the bars in the Dunglen never closed. Gamblers came to the area to bet thousands of dollars. According to various accounts, the largest financial transaction in the area took place inside the hotel. It was a more than $1 million sale of one of the local mines. The second record-breaking event in the Dunglen Hotel was the longest-running poker game. This poker game ran for not one year or two years, but for an incredible 14 years. This record is captured in both Ripley's Believe It or Not and in the Guinness Book of World Records. 14-year poker party, huh? Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it was really happening at the Dunglen. It was. That's what happens when you ban alcohol. Right across the border, somebody's going to put up a saloon. Right. And then they're going to go to town. Exactly. Now, unfortunately, the hotel's demise was just as as grand as its reputation. It was burned down by arsonists on July 22nd, 1930. It burned to the ground and was never rebuilt. But it had a good run. It had a good run. And sadly, this was just one part of a fatal blow to the area's economy. Um, so what happened, Matt, was there was a switch to diesel locomotives, and also some of the local mines closed, and the town began to decline. So the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway changed from steam to diesel locomotives in the 1950s. Thurmond was a steam town. Its rail yard and crews specialized in steam locomotive service which needed frequent stops to refill water and coal. They also needed regular maintenance work, and diesel locomotives didn't need these services. So the switch to diesel left many of the rail yard structures and jobs obsolete. Businesses closed down, and most of the residents moved on. What happened to all the coal barons? I've always wanted to be a coal baron. You'd be a good coal baron. I would be a good coal baron, mm. yeah. Yeah. You had to look like the Monopoly guy. <laughs> I would like, I'm starting to look like him more and more the older I get. 
Now, fast forward to today, the National Park Service restored the Thurman Depot as a visitor center in 1995, and there are more than 20 other park-owned structures in Thurman that you can go see. Um, They're doing all kinds of exterior work and repairs, trying to maintain its vintage 1900s appearance. And they're going to rebuild the Dunglen Hotel. Oh, wouldn't that be something? Poker game started again. Get those <laughs> that would draw coal the, barons back. <laughs> that would draw the tourists it in. Would. But Karen, also, did you know at the Thurman Depot there are ranger-led walking tours offered in the summer, so you can walk on your own or take a tour with the ranger. The walking tour is about a half a mile round trip. It takes about an hour to complete. Now, uh, use caution when crossing the road and railroad line in town. This is still an active railroad tracks so be careful of trains those aren't ghost trains those are real trains freight trains pass through thurman on a daily basis that's right which is pretty cool i think people can you can take the train to thurman also that would be a fun thing to do yeah all right so as far as the ghost stories of this town i read that park rangers have told stories of locking the visitor center up tight only to come back and find all the doors open along with every water faucet in the building turned on now that's something i'd like to see Well, Matt, maybe you can. I was just reading that Ace Adventures has an annual ghost hunting tour in Thurmond. We've talked about Ace Adventures before, haven't we? We have. Yeah, it's an adventure company uh, there where you can stay. They have all sorts of activities there at their location. Also, they offer river rafting trips. We have not stayed there, but we've heard a lot about it. A lot of good things. And in September, they have a ghost hunting tour. And this is pretty interesting. They have a what they call a paranormal investigation in Thurmond. They only take 20 people. It's just one night. They have permission to go inside these buildings, and they investigate paranormal activity. I guess, Matt, they have equipment such as K2 meters, spirit boxes, and SLS cameras. What about a proton pack? Do they have any of those? A what? Yeah, like Ghostbusters, the proton packs. You hunt ghosts with them. You shoot the ghosts and they <laughs> suck them into the proton pack. <laughs> I would be up for that. I think maybe that was 1980s technology and, and uh, Ace Adventures maybe has uh, evolved a little since then. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to contact them and find out. Yeah, maybe next year you could sign up for that. It starts at 7.30 p.m. and you don't get back to Ace Adventures until 1.30 a.m. So already we're out because yeah, we go we, to bed at we 9. We go, go to bed at 9. <laughs> so we can only do the first like hour of the ghost hunting. <laughs> right. But if you're interested in this, um, this year it was held on September 23rd. So I think it's typically around that time. So check it out for next year if you want to go on a ghost hunting tour. But Matt, I want to close with um, something that I read about. And this has to do with the Dunglen Hotel. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, does it also have to do with ghosts? Paranormal it activity? It does. All right. Give it to us. Okay. So this was written by a woman named Dr. Carol Polio. She worked and lived in national parks since 1977 when she began her career at Gateway National Recreation Area. 
Her first experience with a spirit was at that park. It sparked her interest in the belief of the paranormal. Now she's retired and she tells paranormal stories that she has experienced throughout her decades in the National Park Service. So I'm going to read to you what she wrote about the ghost town of Thurmond. Okay. Okay. Today, if you were to visit this location, you would not see evidence of the Dunglen Hotel. It is hidden. In this location is a structure that serves as temporary ranger quarters, what we used to call seasonal housing or the bunkhouse. Beneath one corner of this bunkhouse remains the foundation of the Dunglen Hotel. Why is this significant? Because on more than one occasion, we have heard ballroom music, the clinking of glasses, and people talking and laughing in and around this present day structure when clearly no one else is around. Disembodied voices. There you go. Other staff have reported it to me during the years I worked there. It often occurred late at night, waking them from sleep, and many have been quite scared by these and the other sounds they have heard there. So despite its untimely end by fire, the Dunglen Hotel and its clientele definitely live on in the spirit world. All right. Well, it's all in good fun, but I think for... A lot of people exploring ghost towns is, it's a fun activity. It's a great way to learn about the history of these places that once thrived in and around our national parks. It's a very engaging way to get people into the history of these national park areas, isn't it? It is. And it makes history come alive when you see, even if you just see the shells of these buildings and you can imagine what life was like at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, it really is fascinating this boom and bust cycle and and the really the pioneers who set out to claim these places and strike out and and make a living off the you know off the land and off the mines and things so yeah it's just a, a great walk back in time yeah the national park service is more than outdoor places you know there's a ton of history and all joking aside it is it's great to learn about the history of these places and and to have a few fun ghost stories just makes it more interesting. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today on our Ghost Town episode. It's always fun to get off the beaten path and explore some lesser known areas of the national parks. We'll post some photos of these ghost towns on Instagram, so be sure to follow us there at Matt and Karen Smith. And we'll be back in November with some exciting new episodes. 